Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Marcy Brockman, who is an author, teacher, and host of the Permission to Heal podcast. Marcy, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for asking. And we'd like Excellent. to jump right in. So if you yeah. could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. I have a lot of trouble with fun. I'm a, 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 a person who has always um, battled with workaholism. You know, I find a lot of my own personal meaning and value in, in work that I do. And I devote too much time to it because I sort of forget how to have fun. I create art for fun, but to other people on the outside, that looks like more work. You know, fun. I like movies and my husband and I lately have been watching too much TV because it's too hot to go outside uh, and I'm exhausted. Um, I don't know. I love getting together with friends in small groups and having really meaningful conversations. To me, that's really fun. Spending time with my adult children and um, our grandkids is super fun, but I don't see them often. And uh, so about me, I am, I have for the last 27 years have been a public high school English teacher in a uh, suburban school district on Long Island in New York. Um, which I have adored since the very beginning of my career. I started my podcast, Permission to Heal, in November of 2020 after publishing my book, Permission to Land, Searching for Love, Home, and Belonging, and was looking for more ways to connect my message of self-empowerment and um, the value of emotional, uh, mental and emotional health to a larger audience. And then suddenly I was just struck like a lightning bolt with this idea to start the podcast in November of 2020. And, uh, and it's just been (laughs) phenomenal, phenomenal. So you know, I, I had a history growing up. I was an English, uh, English, and I was an only child growing up in a very dysfunctional family. Um, my dad uh, has always been a narcissist, and and that aside, worked like ninety nine jobs to keep the family afloat. And my mom was basically an undiagnosed bipolar who self medicated with. Um, opiates at the end, but a whole lot of psychotropic medicine along the way that changed her personality. And so growing up with her as my primary caretaker, I was, I I never felt emotionally safe. Let's just put it that way. And I, I grew up feeling like my only value was through service to others in doing things for my mom in any way that I could affect her mood, which wasn't all that, I mean, I was a kid, so there wasn't much that I could do, but I grew up with this notion that I had to do anything and everything that I could to keep her happy because when she was in her Mary Poppins mood, as I put it, when I was a little girl, I felt safer and my world was better. But when she went into the dark Cruella DeVille place, life sucked. Yeah. So, you know, even as a, as a young adult and an adult forming romantic relationships and eventually getting married and starting my own family, this was still the toxic template that I had carried with me. You know, I had um, established every single meaningful relationship I'd ever had on the same template that I had learned from my mom, that what I wanted and what I needed was irrelevant And I had to do and make myself into anything that the other person wanted because that was the way to keep them happy and therefore keep me safe. Um, And it's a disastrous way to live your life. 
absolutely disastrous way to live my life. Uh, and I had been in therapy. I've now been in therapy for more than 20 some odd years. I have been keeping journals since 1983 and have used journal writing and drawing and painting as a way of figuring out, working my way through processing, figuring out how I felt about things. And it really was my saving grace. I think I would have not turned out so well without expressive writing and art therapy that I self-administered without knowing what I was doing. Um, so that's the long and the short of it, really. I gotcha. I gotcha. And so tell us a little bit more about the podcast. Like, is it just you talking? Are you having guests on? Is it amazing? Oh, it's all guests. It's all guests. Uh, I have a lot of knowledge from life experience and a lot of research and three master's degrees and a whole heck of a lot of life behind me. But I, I, I'm always, I always want to learn more things. So I have guests on every week who are therapists and coaches and entrepreneurs and survivors of all sorts of trauma. Um, you know, everything from nutrition and herbalism to psychoanalysis and um, music therapy to people who are coaches in all sorts of aspects of living a brilliant life. And each week we learn from them. You know, that's the best thing I can do is amplify other people who are doing the things that inspire and motivate all of us to be our best selves. And the concept of permission to heal comes really the concept of giving ourselves permission works its way through all of my writing, um, including my memoir and the companion journal, which are called permission to land that that came from an earlier piece of writing that I did in 2015, where I was so disconnected from the life I was living from the choices I was making that I, I wrote in an article that I had published on Elephant Journal that I, I felt like an airplane endlessly circling an airport waiting for permission to land. I, I didn't feel like I was really in my life. Forget balance. I was watching myself almost like an out-of-body experience trying to figure out how to go about making myself happy, but I hadn't figured out that the, the, the permission, the impetus, the agency to do that wasn't coming from some amorphous external force. The only way to make any of that happen was to look inward because it was all inside me from the beginning. And that the only person who had or continues to have any effect or change on my life at all is me ultimately. And that no matter what I want to do or try or become or create or experience, it is all up to me to make that happen. And I didn't learn that lesson until 2015. So I was in my later 40s. So, you know, part of the permission concept was to share that in awakening, that enlightenment with anyone else who would listen, who could benefit from it. So my memoir, Permission to Land, looks at this whole healing journey through the lens of me healing from the relationship from my mom. And, and so though, although it's obviously my story, the, the emotional aspects of it are so universal that I think everybody who reads it can find a piece of themselves in, in, in the text, you know, in the book. And then, and then the podcast is just an outgrowth of that that uh, sort of occurred to me like a lightning bolt a few months later. So yeah, it's just, it, it's one of the most rewarding experiences of my life recording this podcast. You know, you're a podcaster, you know, you learn from the guests, you know, they light up your life, they teach you things or, or even just phrase things in a slightly different way than you thought of before. And I, I think it changes my life every week when I get to interview these people and uh, and I and I hope that the the audience that my listeners feel the same way. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, I love that. That's why I ask some of the same questions. There are some questions that are close to my heart, and every now and then you get a unique answer that makes you think of it a different way. Exactly. So, I really like that. Exactly. Well, awesome. Tell us about your motivation. What gets you up and keeps you going every day? <sighs> what keeps me going every day? During the school year, it's my students. 
Mm. You know, I, I love teaching and I teach 11th and 12th grade English. So they're, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids. And, and they're really at the cusp of like the end of their childhood and the beginning of their young adulthood. And I, I remember how many questions I had about myself and the whole universe and, and trying to grapple with that, with my sense of identity, who the hell am I and what did I want and where was I going and how do I become an adult and, and, and leave behind the innocence or the dependency of childhood, you know? And so I just love helping these kids figure it out. Um, so they really keep me going during the year. And, and that concept of being helpful, being of good, good use, being, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, Tim, but helping other people along with their own healing journey is really something that motivates me tremendously. Um, along with being a good mom to my kids. So, I mean, they live in another, all of them, with the exception of one, we have four, one lives here, but in another County and the other three live in different States. And uh, I make it my business to be in contact with them as often as possible because they're my life, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer the question other than that. I, I mean, think, I think I'm still answer. learning. You know, yeah. I think every day is a different thing. And there are some days where I don't want to get out of bed and I just sit in bed and read or, you know, scroll through TikTok for hours. But I think we all have ups and downs and, and fluctuations in energy and in motivation. But, but most days I, I have this very strong desire to use the limited time I have on this planet in a very productive way. Yeah. Yeah, I had a guest on recently. I was like, what gets you if it keeps you going? He was like, discipline. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's strange. And that as an answer. But he was saying that uh, motivation is kind of like just a crapshoot. Like some days you wake up and you're like, ooh, let's do it. And then other days you wake up and you're like, wow, I really don't want to do anything. I just want to lay in bed all day. Bruno Mars, today I don't feel like doing anything type of vibes. Right. But, I, yeah. you know, I think that if we – if we are introspective and intuitive about how and listen to our bodies, that our bodies tell us when they need more rest, yeah. you know, and, and when they have more energy, it's, it's really obvious. And to push yourself to do a full calendar of things when your body is telling you to lay the F down, yeah. you're not, it's just going to be a fight all day. So where possible, I listen. Today go. was one of those days, which is why I blew my interview schedule earlier today. But let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> all good. All good. Well, awesome. Now we're going to jump into your dreams and goals. So, yeah, tell us about your vision for your life and your company. Okay. Well, I'm going to retire from teaching in about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. And I'm 54 now. So I will be 60. And you know, when I was a small, a young girl and my grandparents, I think were this age, I had this concept of them as being old, <laughs> you know, and now I, most of the time, if I close my eyes and I think, how old do I feel? I feel about 32. That's fair doesn't quite reconcile with the 54 year old I see in the mirror, but that's, that's, that's in a whole other story. But I, I just, I see, I see my life as a continuing adventure. You know, like I had short stints in seven careers before I became a teacher because I couldn't find anything that made me feel alive, that brought meaning to my life, that made me feel like I was doing something worthwhile. Everything else I was bored with and seemed really superficial. So I got myself into teaching and I've loved it. But I'm almost done. We're seven years, we'll be finished. But then I started thinking this past winter, what am I doing next? You know, I've got the podcast. There's probably another book or two inside me that hasn't come out yet. There's a TED talk, definitely, but it's still amorphous. I don't quite know what the messaging is yet. And so I went back to school just in June. I'm in my first, still in my first two classes now, 
um, to be a licensed mental health counselor. So I'm starting a new career in my late 50s, which if we follow the old patterns of what life is supposed to look like from the previous generations, this seems ludicrous, or at least it did to me before I started thinking about it differently. Um, but I'm ready to tackle something else new and use the life experience and the knowledge that I have acquired over the what will be six decades of my life, or actually the completion of five decades of my life, if we look at it actually, um, to helping other people along their own healing journeys in a different way. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's what I envision. You know, um, whether I will start my own practice, which was my original thought, and have that under the Marcy Brockman International umbrella, along with the books and the there's an expressive writing course I have on YouTube and uh, and and the podcast, or I will join an established practice or a combination of both. I I don't know yet, and I'm trying not to question the universe's methodologies because so far when I trust in the path and I don't obsess about where I'm going with it, it, it really leads me to where I can find my most purpose and my most value. So I think that's my long answer to that question. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I got you. So it's really how many years, six years you're going to retire from teaching. Yeah. And then you're going to start a new career as a therapist. And what was the type of therapist? A licensed mental health counselor. Licensed mental health counselor. I love it. I love it. And so you're kind of still between own practice or kind of hopping on with somebody for those first couple of years. But ultimately, I assume it's kind of like you want your own thing going. I think so. But I, I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. And I heard another book and a TED talk in there, right? Well, there's a TED talk that's like half, I would say 35 to 40% solid in my head, which is not enough to start planning. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out, you know, uh, and, and there may be another book or two, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused and content on, on what it is I'm doing now. So we'll see how it evolves. Can you give us the 35% of the TED talk or is that exclusive until the stage? No, no, it's fine. I mean, 30% is nothing really. Um, I, I had, when I was interviewing a mental health counselor, a therapist on my podcast, probably about a year ago. And we were talking about um, psychotherapy for teenagers, for adolescents. And I was relating my experience when I was about 16, I think 15 or 16 years old. My parents were in the middle of a very contentious, awful, horrible divorce. They were weaponizing me against each other. And I, I was in a, in a shitty, awful place. And like I said about my relationship with my mom, it wasn't safe ground for me. And so I had said that I wanted to find a therapist and she was all too happy to help me find one. But then she insisted on sitting in the room with me when I talked to the therapist. And it wasn't safe for me to say what I actually needed to talk about because it would have been, I would have had hell to pay on the way home and at home with my mom. And the counselor wasn't savvy enough to insist that my mother leave, to take the decision out of my hands and just say, you know what, you have to leave, go sit in the waiting room while your daughter and I talk, which is what I needed her to do, but I couldn't even ask her to do that. You know, now if that happened, I might be savvy enough to email her on the sly and say, this is what I need. But we're talking like the early eighties, yeah. there was no email that hadn't been, that didn't exist yet. So I, I was just really unsafe. And this woman just did not create a safe place for me to explore what I needed to explore. And ultimately she just shook her shoulder, you know, uh, shr uh, shrugged her shoulders and said to my mom, well, I guess Marcy's not, just not ready to talk yet. And my mother was really frustrated because I was the one who had asked to go to therapy. She didn't understand. So, so the, the Ted talk, 
is centered around so far, centered around the concept of making sure that either we give adolescents the space to feel and discover their own identity, or from the counselor's point of view as to what we need to do for the adolescents who come to us in, in helping them. So it could go either direction, but that's kind of where it's going, I think. It could change direction again. I don't know. I love it. But, but I think it's ultimately really important that we are aware, especially if we are parents or we are the guides of other children in some way, you know, some other kids relationship in relationship with some other kids is to, to really listen to what they're trying to tell us either through their behavior or their, you know, non other nonverbal communication or what they're actually saying. And I think so many of us maybe through no fault of our own, maybe it was our own upbringing or the culture in which we came out into the world where it could be all the responsibilities and financial burdens that grownups, that adults have in our world in 2022. There are a myriad of reasons why we don't hear the things we need to hear. And, and being aware of all of that can help us focus on what they actually need, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there we go. I think it's, uh, I'd call it 38%, 40% of the way there. Who knows? I, there's no, there's not enough. Yet. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's that far, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. I feel like maybe, and this is just me reaching, but yeah. would it be, what would like take it to a hundred percent? Would it be like a study that you've done on teenagers and how they feel like they have space or best practices or would it be like another story or two to kind of co corroborate like what would take it to 100 percent? you think i think a combination of that i think i think i would have to have had more experience from the counseling end to or more research maybe some more anecdotal stories to sort of help the audience identify with or put themselves in the situation so that the, the things that I'm saying actually make sense. You know, you, you've got to reach your audience and make them want to pay attention. So um, when I watch other TED Talks, they seem to have more substance than just what I communicated to you. So it needs, it needs, more, it needs more substance in some way, whether it's my own experience or it's research or um, some sort of study I've, I've done. It needs something. I got you. Well, if there were one or two people that you could meet right now, and this could be a specific person or a type of person, and they'd really help you take the next step towards these dreams and goals, who would they be and how would they help you? Wow, that's a question to answer with no forethought. Um, <laughs> the first person who comes to mind is Dr. Brene Brown. She, uh, I've written every single word that she has published, as far as I can tell. I listen to every one of, her, of, of the episodes of both of her podcasts. And um, I think she has been the instructive catalyst and motivator for a lot of my own um, mental health growth in the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. And I, 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 I've messaged her, I've emailed her, I've gotten no response. She lives in Texas, I live in New York, I don't expect a response. Um, hey, I live in Texas. But I, I've, I've uh, oh, you do? I can go knock on her door. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can, um, but I, I've invited her to dinner. You know, like if she ever finds herself in New York somewhere, I'll, I'll take her to dinner. I would love to see Elizabeth Gilbert who is a, a, an internationally famous writer. Um, she writes about creativity and all sorts of really amazing things. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if people, you've heard of that. Um, heard it's of made it into a movie. Uh, she's, just, she's just really philosophical and, and brilliant in the things that she says. And, and I listened to, um, she wrote a, a, a book called, uh, what the heck's it called? creative magic or mad I'm losing my mind right now, but I listen to this book every single year because it really helps me sharpen my relationship with my own creativity. I would love to meet uh, Glennon Doyle, 
who's a, another philanthropist, famous writer, podcaster, and she and her wife and her sister have a podcast. And I listen to that faithfully. And they've also helped me fine tune my own thoughts about my own, my, about my relationships. And I would love to have the dinner with the four of us. That would be a freaking blast. So Dr. Brene Brown. Elizabeth Glennon, Gilbert. Oh, Elizabeth Doyle. Okay. Elizabeth and Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert. Gotcha. I love it. I love it. And if there were one or two things that everyday people could do to help you accomplish your dreams, so not them accomplish theirs, but you accomplish yours, what would those two, one or two things be? How would they even have access? Um, Tim, how do you answer that question? Uh, everyday people. I, I don't, I, I, I just think the answer that I have is compassion and kindness. That I think that m- more people, if more people, if more people related to each other from the standpoint of com- compassion and kindness rather than uh, apathy or divisiveness or fear or anger or distrust that we would all be in a better place in this world. And if we are all be in a better place, then I would be in a better place and they would be in a better place. Um, and I think that, that it really would, would help us all get to a healthier, more balanced, happier, more fulfilled place in our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. That is a more common answer than you would think. And now we're going to jump into our thriving three. The first question thriving is... Thriving three. Okay. I love your, 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 your pattern here. It's cool. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, what's your favorite book, movie, or podcast? Pick one. Pick one book, movie, or podcast? Mm-hmm. That's a tough question. Um, Besides this one, of course. Of course. Can I choose my own? <laughs> I mean, yeah, if that's your favorite, go for it. Yeah, I think the one that brings the most meaning to my life is my own podcast. I mean, I hate to say that, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and I learn a lot of things from a lot of podcasts, but I don't think that I learn as much as I learn from my own because I'm the one interviewing, vetting and interviewing the guests, you know? So for me, it's like that firsthand experience with, with the guest on my podcast who I'm interviewing. Um, if I had to choose another one, it would be Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things, because um, they tackle a- anything and everything that has to do with life and relationships and our bodies and the patriarchy and everything else, you know? And I learn something every single time I listen to it. Love it. We can do hard things. And what is one way you like to take care of yourself? What is one way I like to take care of myself? Um, Well, every single day I do some sort of artwork, whether it's coloring in an adult coloring book or it's just drawing. I do a lot of neurogenic drawing, which is like the style of painting that's behind me. And it's just colorful and free form. And each day it takes on a different different kind of mood and color palette. Um, And every day I read. Um, It's the way I go to sleep at night. Cause I, I have one of those brains that has an extremely overactive internal monologue. And if I don't focus on something while I'm trying to fall asleep, I could lay in bed for hours, just stewing over 45 different things. Yep. So if I focus on a book and it has to be something nonsensical and ridiculous, like a romance novel, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing, but it's the way it goes. Um, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of my intellect invested in it. And then I fall asleep. So those are two ways, making sure I get enough sleep and creating art every day. There we go. There we go. And what is one action step you can take right now or continue to take if you're already doing it to have dinner with Dr. Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle, and Elizabeth Gilbert at the same table? Oh, action step, huh? Yep. Well, I've already messaged them and emailed them all, but I, I also know them all well enough from their public personas to know that they're all introverted enough where that's not going to happen. 
Um, I'd be more more effective, I think, getting them on a Zoom call because then no one actually has to leave their house and they don't have to get dressed if they don't want to. Um, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I keep talking about it on social media. I've emailed them. I've messaged them. Um, maybe as I continue along my journey and refine my own mission and purpose, maybe uh, my messaging and what I say to them will change or evolve. There we go. You know, um, you should read this book called Giftology. Giftology? Giftology, yep. Okay. It's a great book. It is about marketing, but it's about a unique way of marketing that I think you can apply to get them all on a Zoom call with you. All right, I will look it up. Yes, it's it's a good book. And it's like a two-hour read, I think. Like, it was really oh. good. So, I listened to it in two hours. I didn't actually read it, read it. Well, if, if you can listen to it in two hours, you could read it in two hours. Yep, yep. That's what they, that's what you'd like to think. Some people read slower, some people read faster. You know, I had the world's fastest reader on this podcast, and he can read books. Like, literally, he says, the only reason it takes me a long time to read a book is because it takes me time to turn the pages. Like, he literally just... Really? Yeah. How? I mean, he... <laughs> this is so cool. You should ask me if you want to learn how to read faster, which would help you with grad school. Honestly. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of reading in grad school, but you should go to his website and see if he can teach you some What's tips his name? and tricks. Do you know? I, I'm really blanking on it right now. Okay. But if you Google, I'll Google it right now. World's fastest reader and he'll come up. Um, <laughs> but how he does it, Howard Berg is the world's Howard fastest Howard Berg. Reader. Yes. B-E-R-G or B-U-R-G? B-E-R-G. Okay. He can read more than 25,000 words per minute. What? <laughs> and the only reason it takes some time is because he has to flip the pages. And how he does it is what he's like, hell? yeah, he says, you think in pictures. You don't think in like words. You don't think in, um, Text. You think in yeah, you think in pictures, right? And so he was like, you need to turn on the movie aspect of your brain. Because when you're watching a movie, think about how much information you take in from the screen. Right. But then when you're reading, you're only taking in one word at a time. He's like, that's really inefficient. Your brain can do a lot more. So turn on the part of your brain that is watching a movie. And then you can look at a page and see all the words and make sense of them like that. In the same way, I could show you one second of a movie clip and you could describe the scenery to me and describe the scene to me. He's saying the same thing can happen with a book. And he actually went and taught kids how to do this. I think it was like 12 year olds. And he gave them a college textbook. He had them read the textbook in like a week or two. And then all of them aced the test or like a high percentage of them aced the test showing that he wasn't some sort of savant, but it was like a skill that humans had where if they honed it, they could read and take in information extremely quickly. Wow. I'm gonna check this guy out and maybe bring it to my high school students in the fall. You should. He teaches people how to do it on his website. So Wow. That would help a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, you can do all your homework in two minutes now. Two minutes. <laughs> and Yay! Test. Um, yeah, super valuable skill. And I feel like he should be more well-known. Like, I didn't even know about him. And I'm like, you should be one of the most famous people on the planet because. Well, there, there's a guy. What's his name? His last name is Quick, believe it or not. I can't remember his first name suddenly. And he is also a speed reader type guy. Yes. You know, I've seen some ads with him. Um, let's see. Jim Quick. Jim Quick. Yeah. Yeah. Mind Valley is the company. Mind Valley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Now we are going to jump into our final series of questions. Okay. And these questions require a bit of pretext. And it's also completely okay to say I don't know or pass or I just don't have an answer because they do require some thought too and I did not okay give I'm nervous now all right <laughs> so a lot of people have come on the podcast and they've said that the catalyst that helps people change from having a fixed mindset not willing to accept help and not willing to accept change to having a growth mindset being willing to accept help and being willing to accept change the catal catalyst that helps people make that switch is a personal choice that happens after either extreme inspiration or extreme desperation. 
Do you agree, disagree, have anything to add or subtract? Um, I think it's inspiration. Um, am I allowed to relate a little anecdote to this? Absolutely. Okay. So I, when, when I was growing up, my mom of all the other things that were going on in her life, um, was extremely shy and because of her shyness created anxiety and she, it it kept her from doing things that she said she wanted to do. And I remember when I was 14, having a conversation with her where she told me that there were all of these regrets that she had in her life, all of these things that she wanted to do. She felt terrified to do because she was so cripplingly shy. And I, I used my mother as a cautionary tale, as I have so many times in my life and her, her dissatisfaction with her life inspired me to make a radical change And I talked myself out of being shy because I think it was just her who had given me that label and I believed it. And I decided to not be shy anymore, which sounds when I tell people that story, especially students, they think it's crazy. But I I actually asked myself, if I talk to that group of kids over there and I say something funny or I join their conversation, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? I'm not going to die. The earth isn't going to quite crack open and swallow me whole. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen is that they don't react the way I want to when I walk away. I, I, I have nothing in my hand. And if I venture nothing, then I still have nothing. Yep. And so it made me just open my mouth. And I said something that I thought was funny. And they all thought it was funny. Oh, Marcy, oh, my God, you're so funny. We didn't know you were so funny because you're always so quiet. So I think it's inspiration. Mm. Yeah, I think inspiration is the lasting kind of sustaining change. And then there's kind of a weird thing where some people get desperate and they take a lot of action and they change. And some people get desperate and then they just get crushed under the desperation. So I feel well, like I've been desperate to, to, to be to put myself on a diet to lose weight. And it never lasts very long. Exactly. Because the desperation I don't, I don't think it's peters out. It's not sustainable. No. The second you start feeling good, then all of your oomph is gone. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, why do you think some people, given the same amount of extreme inspiration or extreme desperation, make the choice to change and others don't? Fear. Fear. They're fear. They're afraid of failing. They're afraid of, they're afraid that they don't deserve the good thing or they don't deserve the success. And it holds them back. Self-limiting beliefs, as you you said before. Um, I think that's the number one thing. Other people have told them who they are rather than them having figured it out themselves. So they're using a false identity to envision themselves in which to envision themselves that then makes them afraid to move forward. I love it. I love it. And you've kind of answered my next question as well, but I'm going to ask it just in case you have anything to add. Okay. (laughs) Um, Some people need a smaller amount of inspiration or desperation to change and others need a larger, more consistent amount. What do you think establishes that breaking point and can it be influenced? I think that the, the, the familial culture in which you come, that, that which you come from, bad sentence, but that you come from and the identity that you have with yourself, whether someone else gave it to you like my mom said that I was shy, like she was shy, which wasn't what didn't wind up to be true. Um, I, I think that that gets in the way. And I think that some people, it comes more naturally. I mean, some people are, are, are more courageous than others. And I think part of that may be genetic. Part of that may be, I don't know, it's a complicated, complicated f- group of factors. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with how how we're inspired to, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Nature versus nurture, right? Like it's just both of those. It's both. It's really both, you know, like I, I had this image of myself as my mother's daughter, as my grandmother's daughter, that, that was different. It used to be different than it is now. I started to look at myself recently as another one more generation of women in a long line of generations of women. So I started to see how my great grandmother who emigrated from Russia in like 1901, um, escaping the pogroms of czarist Russia to come to the United States and the 
the life that she led in Russia and the lives of the women in her, you know, her ancestors led all affect my genetics and the emotional culture that I was raised in because each subsequent mother or each previous mother raises their kid, raises their daughter in in, in a way that makes sense to them. So my great grandmother having survived the pogroms of Russia was, she came to the United States poorer than dirt, right in the middle, you know, lived through the depression, had four kids die. My grandmother was born in the depression. She had three brothers die, um, you know, like, and then she raised my mom who wound up being sickly. So, you know, the fact that my grandmother's brothers died informed the way she raised my mother who was sick when she was a kid. And then that made my mom grow up with the set of anxieties and insecurities that she has and then had. And then she raised me in the in the in the throes of that. And, and so I feel like what I've done is being aware of all of that. And that's nature and that's nurture because so long when it's that many generations, the anxiety and the trauma actually affects the genetic coding of our DNA yes. and makes us behave certain ways because that's how our bodies are. So I think nurture and nurture are responsible yeah. for, for things, you know, and I can't necessarily affect the, 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 the nature you know, the genetics that I've passed on to my children, but I've done the very best that I can to end the intergenerationality of the emotional effects of the, the, the nurture part of it. Um, so I'm hopeful that they have fewer things to contend with than I did. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing. You're that. welcome. Sure. It's a great perspective. And it makes me look at myself with less victimization. You know, I stopped looking at myself as somebody that was 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 inflicted upon by my mother. You know, like I don't look at her as evil anymore or I don't look at her as malicious or malignant anymore. Yep. I mean, not that she was entirely people are much more complicated than that. And she did have her her wonderful, loving and generous times. But I, I just stopped looking at myself as victimized and, and just as another generation in the family. Mm. Yeah. Which is an important mindset shift, that idea yeah. from victimhood to I can realize where I'm at and take control of where I'm going. Exactly. A thousand percent. Well, we have one last question for you. Sure. And uh, before this question, I want you to keep in mind the avatar of a person who has a fixed mindset. They're not willing to accept help and they're not willing to accept change. Okay. So in Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about the four laws of changing your behavior. And the laws are to make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. With that context in mind, and the avatar I told you about earlier, how can we, you and I, create an environment that makes it obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying for that avatar to make the choice that will change their life? So we're not trying to change them because we can't change people, but we can create an environment that is more conducive to them becoming their best selves. Well, I tried to do this with a student I had last year. He and his mom and I spoke many times about wanting to encourage him to change his behavior in his life. Um, he had been from an inner city neighborhood in New York City uh, where he was in a gang and he... Um, did some things that were illegal and two of his friends died in the process and to break the patterns of those things for him, his mother moved them several counties out into the suburbs. So he moved into the district in which I teach. So he was sitting in my 11th grade English class last year and he connected with me on an emotional level somehow. Uh, it happens. I become school mom for kids. And he said to me after school one day, uh, he told me about his life and, and very vaguely the things that he had been, had been involved in and wanted to change. So I think he is the kind of guy that you're talking about. 
he didn't really believe that he could change and yet simultaneously wanted to change. And he knew that changing would make his mother happier and cause her less worry. He knew that it might save his life. So that was a big motivator. And he knew that he wanted to feel better about himself, but he didn't think that he was capable of living without the negative connections that somehow became positive connections or that he thought were positive connections with the community that he was involved with. And he kept choosing the same type of friends or the same type of people to align with because they satisfied some need in him that he was unable to articulate and that we were sort of unable to figure out because we also showed him how to join clubs or become friendlier in class with kids who might be better motivators or healthier relationships for him. And there were times where he was on the healthier road and then he just kept rolling back. And then he'd take two steps forward and four steps backwards. And it went the entire school year that way. Um, he barely passed the class. He passed the Regents exam, which is our state exam at the end. Um, but, but even in conversations I had with his mom at the end of the year, he still was having trouble staying on the straight path. And, and I, I, I don't know what else we could have done. You know, we were motivating him with grades on my end and my approval on, on one end, which does mean something to some kids and his own mother's approval and love and, and worrying and anxiety and so on. And she was doing whatever she could on the family end to give him support and make him feel safe and allow him the freedom to talk to her as I was doing on, on my end. We had the school psychologist involved. We had his guidance counselor involved. And even with all the support, he still struggled. Now, he's still only 16, maybe 17 years old. So there is a possibility as a hopeful person that, that he will continue to evolve. So we'll see what happens when he's a senior. Um, it's a difficult time. You know, he's trying to figure out his own identity and, and where he wants to be. So uh, I don't have another answer. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could say, well, we needed to do was this and wave the magic wand and woo, he was perfectly fine. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If any of your listeners have the answer, they can email me, marcybrockman at gmail.com. I would love to hear it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, when it comes down to it, people just have to make that choice, right? Now, I think the thing that kind of gets me, and I think Bob Proctor touches on this, so I kind of want to go listen to some of his stuff again. He touches on it, but he never, like, gives me the answer from the books I read. Maybe I need to buy his seminar or whatever it is. <laughs> Maybe there's the answer. But okay. um, the two steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward, four steps back is the sign of somebody who like, you know, they want to change. And I've heard it, I've heard it described in a TED talk too. It's the self-sabotage of like, mm -hmm. talks about how, your mind is kind of like your subconscious is like an elephant and your conscious mind is like an ant and the ant is on top of the elephant and the elephant is walking one way and the ants walking the other. So when you're consciously trying to change, it's like your ant is walking in the way of positive relationship, but your elephant is walking in the way of That's uh, a really good visual analogy, the more negative relationship. So it doesn't matter how far that ant walks, the elephant takes one step and it's like all the way back. Right. And so I was really like, I actually think Bob Proctor does talk about how to change it. And he talks about like the law of auto suggestion, basically, which is like literally repeating thoughts in your head to like, like affirmations. Yeah. Yeah. Affirmations to impress it on your subconscious. And then Alex Formosi took affirmations one step further. And he was like, give affirmations like evidence. Say like, I'm a good person because I did this, or I'm a smart right. person because I got this grade. And then you'll, your brain will start to believe it even more. So I just thought that those are some interesting thoughts, but I agree. It's just, you know, you say people just have to make the choice, but it's like, that choice isn't like 
an easy thing to make. And sometimes no, absolutely make- not. Yeah, absolutely and, not. It's like and I, I do journal writing with my students every single day, and I put up quotes that are meaningful to me. It's all about mental health and self actualization and figuring out your identity. And every single day, the first five minutes of class is responding to these things. And then we talk about them. And and I'm looking at literature from a mental health standpoint. Why did this character choose to do this? What factors in this person's life caused them to do this? So I'm trying to teach them emotional intelligence while we're doing the literature that we're doing so that they can get something more out of it than just protagonist, antagonist conflict. Because, you know, that's fun and great. And I love reading. I'm an English teacher, but who gives a shit? You know, really, what are we getting out of it? You know, why did this character do that? Why did Othello ultimately kill his wife? What was he missing in his life? How were the other characters able to act upon him to make him do that? You know, and and I think ultimately that's what we get out of it. I mean, that, that helps us get more out of it that we can then apply to our own lives. So it's, it's, it's yeah, it's a tangled web. It's a tangled <laughs> web. There we go. Well, Marcy, is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off? I think we covered a lot of stuff. Um, I just, I, I guess the, the the thing that I always want to impress upon people is that the only thing that's in your way from achieving your dreams is you. It really is. And get out of your own damn way. You can do anything if you want it badly enough. If you do enough research, if you put, put enough energy and focus, enough intention and agency and enough boom, boom, whatever, you know, like something, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm wonderful, but I'm no special ones in a generation type of woman. I'm an ordinary woman from Long Island, New York. And if I can do the things that I want to do, anybody can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Marcy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. It was great to be here. Of course. And if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Marcy had to say, make sure to go check out her podcast, Permission to Heal, and check out her website. Follow her. Interact with yeah. her. Encourage her. website is marcybrockman.com. Brockman is with two N's. And all the books, the podcast, the art, everything's all under one roof. So it's all there. There we go. And that link will be in the show notes. Guys, as we always ask, go ahead and shoot this podcast over to one to three people you know need to hear this message. Go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes, and we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.